0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, so, we're starting a new series today called Dear Corinth, and um, it's uh, a series where we're going to be teaching from the book of 2 Corinthians. And one of the things that I like to keep in mind when I'm teaching or reading any of the epistles, which is just a, a fancy way of saying the letters that Paul wrote to the early churches, is I like to keep in mind that these are real people in, with real problems in chaotic settings. And weird things happened in all of these churches. And so what happens is you read your Bible a lot of times and you're looking for like these deep uh, nuggets of theology and deep nuggets of truth that apply to our life. But you read through these weird interactions that Paul or other people are having with these churches and you're like, what the heck is taking place? And a lot of times we don't know. It's just weird, weird things. So just keep that in mind, maybe you're going to be reading through Corinthians yourself, you go back to read 1 Corinthians to put, your, put this series in a context, um, but to keep that idea that weird things happen in churches, to keep that at the front of your mind, before every message of this series, I'm going to share some of the weirdest moments at Cornerstone with you, okay? Okay. <laughs> So the first I will tell you about uh, occurred several years ago. It was that very, very special week of Passover week, Easter week leading up to Easter. And one of the things we used to do here at Cornerstone is we'd have something called Stations of the Cross. It's an old Christian tradition where you kind of, you move through these different stations, you read different things, and you reflect on the different uh, moments of the, the last several hours of Jesus' life. And it's just It's it's a beautiful setting, it's usually quiet and dark and and peaceful, and people just, they find a lot of meaning in it. Well, we decided one year that we weren't going to set up the stations throughout the whole building, and if you remember the old building, it was already small, but we thought we're going to set up all the stations in our old auditorium, which was not a big space. But we thought, it's going to be great to have everyone crowded in there together, they're going to feel the energy, we're all going to be there together moving through the stations. Well, early on that evening, something terrible happened. There was a lady who, I, I, don't, I don't even remember who it is, so if it's you, I'm sorry I'm telling your story today, but you might not want to let people know it was you. There was a lady that had really, really long blonde hair, and she was at one of the first stations, and she leaned down and kind of turned, and she drug her long blonde hair through two candles, <laughs> and her hair caught on fire. But she didn't know her hair was on fire because her hair was so long and it was on her back. And so she began to walk to the next station with her hair on fire. And, you know, this is this peaceful, wonderful saying, Well, all hell breaks loose and people began to panic. And so someone comes up and they grab this lady and she probably thinks she's being attacked. And, and they begin to pat the, the fire out on her back. And so everyone's moment was just robbed. It was, the whole thing was ruined and the room that was filled with the beautiful smell of candles is now filled with the smell of burnt hair for the rest of the evening. For days, everyone would say, hey, do you remember when that lady's hair caught on fire? Oh yeah. So because of that, houses of worship are not allowed to have candles anymore in all of Boulder. So uh, city council passed an ordinance, just kidding, they didn't. (laughs) They would like to, but they haven't yet. Okay, here's another one. It was a Sunday that Gene was preaching, and uh, I often just kind of moved around and just made sure that everything was set and people were, were safe and just there for weird things to happen Well, something weird happened. This man walked in, and in our old uh, layout, um, the kids' lobby is now, was our entire lobby. And so anytime someone comes... Comes that's new, you you get to see him, and it was nice. I mean, it was a great way for us to greet all the new people, and we'd go out and say hi. Well, this this one man was very, very strange acting, and he was wandering around the building, and he was going into rooms that he wasn't supposed to go into, offices, and moving towards the kids' wing. And so he quickly got our attention, and I was keeping my eye on him. Well, he was wandering around the building and decided to come into the service about 40 minutes into the service. So Gene's already up giving his message, and he's just walking very strangely weaving through the auditorium. He eventually makes his way up into our old balcony. He sits down in his chair and assumes the meditating position, crisscross applesauce on the chair, and he's doing this, and he begins to chant (laughs) from the balcony during Gene's message. He starts chanting, and so I come up next to him, and I sit down, and I I I thought it was gentle, but I gently put my hand on his shoulder and I whispered to him. I said, you can't do that here. (laughs) And he opened one eye because he had his eyes closed. He opened one eye and looked at me and then just stopped. Well, a couple minutes later, he stands up in the balcony and he walks down the stairs and he walks all the way to the front towards Gene. And I'm thinking, I'm going to take this guy out. I got you, Gene. (laughs) Comes all the way to the front, gets in the same same position, grabs a blanket. I won't tell you why we had blankets back then, but we did. Wraps this blanket around his shoulder and sits down for about two minutes, then gets up and walks out the middle of the aisle. So it's totally disruptive in the middle of Gene's message. I'm following him. Everyone now knows like Brian's on this guy. This is going to get weird. Many people were thinking it's more exciting outside with what's about to happen than inside. (laughs) Even though it was a great message. He starts to make his way towards the kid's wing. And I'm like, all right, this is it. I've had enough of this guy. And he stops and he turns around and he looks at me and he said, can I have this shawl? And, and I thought, you can have whatever you want if you're going to leave. And so he has this shawl around him. And he said to me, he said, if this shawl returns to you, you are a friend. If it doesn't return to you, you are a foe. And he walked out of the building, never to be seen again. Weird things happen at church, especially in this town. <laughs> Security team is on high alert today. They're like, all right, we're ready. Hey, but it, it, it was like this. Like all these New Testament churches, they they were not perfect. They had weird people, goofy people, weird things happening in their community people going through things. It was just like this great big mess of people, and that's what the church is. And so I want you to remember that as we get into some of these passages it can be tough. Today's a little easier. I'm gonna give you a great big pep talk that Paul gives to the Corinthian church at the beginning. But if you wanna place this book in context, you, of course, can read the book of 1 Corinthians, which is his first letter to them. You can also go to Acts chapter 18, which is where we first see uh, the Corinthians mentioned in the scriptures, it says this in verse 8, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized, what did they hear? They heard the gospel, Jews and Greeks, and they were baptized, and then Acts chapter 18 verse 11, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Really, this is the pattern that Paul had. He would go to certain places, he would, he would make a, a spiritual and intellectual argument for the gospel. Um, an emotional argument for the gospel, all of these things, people would believe churches would be birthed and he would be their first pastor and he would pastor them for a while and then Paul would get up and he would leave and he would go to another place and he would do the same thing over and over again. But what Paul was trying to do, especially with the Corinthians, is over and over again he's trying to help them see that this one event that's taken place in history, the gospel, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and the meaning of that is because Jesus died, he could take upon himself our very worst, our sin, our death, the consequences of all of those things. He takes it upon himself so that it can be transformed. And the reason it can be transformed is because he shares with us his great victory, the resurrection. Jesus knows the way through every tomb. And he wants to share his new life with us. And so Paul over and over again is trying to help this young church understand like this is the central idea that changes everything. Everything is summed up in this. And so one of the subjects that comes up in 1 Corinthians is the subject of wisdom and boasting. And Paul says the gospel is like foolishness to the world. But it's true wisdom. When you begin to understand what it means to die to yourself to live for God, that is the beginning of true wisdom. And at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he brings up the subject of comfort. Where does comfort come from? Where does the ability to comfort someone else who is suffering? Well, he says it all goes to the gospel again, understanding the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's this mystery that he's trying to help them understand. And over and over again, he's affirming them and he's saying this, what has happened to Jesus is happening to you. Or what is true of Jesus is true of you. So he's trying to help form in them a brand new identity. Now when we get to the passage that we're going to look at uh, later parts of chapter 1 here, the Corinthians are a little bit in a panic. They are angry with Paul. So there's been some conflict that's taken place. We don't know all of the reasons why they're angry with Paul. It's a bummer for Paul because he had just gone through a season of terrible suffering. Now this old church is angry with him. One of the reasons we know they're angry is because Paul has not come back to visit them. He's left. They've been asking for him to come and help, and he's delayed. For whatever reason, he's in Ephesus. They want him to come. Now, I I can imagine it this way. Uh, The Corinthians were prone as um, these new Christians to trust in bad leaders. So maybe they had been hurt by bad leadership. They've been deceived by deceptive leaders. It's a subject that comes up in both of his letters. So maybe they're thinking, hey, we can't really figure things out on our own apart from Paul. We need Paul to come back. And so they keep sending messages, Paul, come visit us, come visit us. For whatever reason, Paul does not hurry. In fact, he finally decides to go to Corinth and he doesn't take the faster route, which is over the sea on a ship. He goes by land up and around in parts of modern day Turkey. It's going to take him now several months. But on his journey to the Corinthians, as he's stopping along the way, he writes a letter with Timothy, and that's the letter of 2 Corinthians. But he's trying to help them say, hey, you don't need to panic. You are okay without me. And so the passage we're going to look at today is kind of like what happens. Many of you have been in meetings before where there's panic in the room. People don't know what to do. And maybe the boss or that, that one person that's on the team shows up. And they bring vision and perspective, and everyone calms down. Like, oh, so-and-so is here. A better way to illustrate it is what happens to men when their wives leave them at home with their children for a weekend. <laughs> so today's my wife's birthday. Yeah. I'm in big trouble since I, because I said that. But when, when Elise would leave, she'd abandon me these weekends when our boys were little and it was awful there were two goals like one was survival just keep them alive and the other goal was to get my kids to sleep as fast as humanly possible in the evening there was no quality time It was just like I mean it was lord of the flies with four boys in our house the boys would often ask me for things like hey dad where are the markers and I'd be like I don't know where the markers are you have to wait and ask mom when she comes home She'd come home, i like, where are the markers? She's like, these markers? She'd open one dr- cupboard, and there they are. She's like, these markers? I'm like, yeah, those markers. The boys and I would look at each other just like, we're all fools. <laughs> First weekend, Elise was gone. I was terrified. She came home. I was so proud of myself. The house was a wreck. Everyone looked terrible. But I was so proud of myself. We made it. <laughs> now, some of, are, some of you are thinking, mostly the women, and you're thinking, that's very pathetic, Brian. And, you know, you'd, you'd be saying that, and I'd be saying to you, you're right, but there are so many men in this room that understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> a few weeks ago, in fact, I was coming out of the office area, moving into this room, and it was about 15 minutes before first service, and a dad walks in with just like an army of kids. I mean, I don't even know how many of them there were, and he looked disheveled and exhausted, and his kids looked feral. They look different than they normally do. <laughs> And they're early for church. They're never, this family's never early for church. And I knew exactly what was going on. Mom was out of town. And dad came up with the great idea. I'm gonna check my kids into first service as fast as possible. And I'm gonna be the last one to check them out of second service. But all joking aside, it's kind of like that. When, when, when mom gets home, it's just like, oh, relief. Now, Remember, Paul is their first pastor. He's their spiritual father like the big brother. There's a lot of stuff happening. They need him to be there, or so they think. And so Paul, in his way, is saying, hey, the gospel's what you need. God has given you everything you need. You don't need to be so desperate to have certain people leading you. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 is our passage for the day. Just two verses. I want to show you three important statements and really focus in on just the middle one. So this Jewish rabbi gives a bunch of Hellenized Jews or Greeks a pep talk in Christian theology. And this is what he says in verse 21. Now it is God who makes both of us, both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. And he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, remember, they're, they're anxious to have him come. They're angry that it's taken so long. So right away, he levels the playing field, and he says, it's God who makes both of us stand firm in Christ. And so the, the first thing that we see here, the first statement is Paul is saying that we're all been, we've been um, changed. We've been put in this place where we have a firm standing before the Lord. Then he goes on to make this strong statement, you are anointed, we're going to spend tons of time talking about that word today. And then he talks about this seal of ownership, this guarantee, a promise of what's to yet, yet to come. These three very, very special things. So for a moment, let's just think about standing firm. He's talking about standing firm in a sense that we all have been established. That we have a standing with God and a standing in this world. We have a place in this world. We have a place in our families that God has made for us. Um, In other places where, where Paul is using the word stand, especially in the book of Ephesians, he says over and over again, we've been seated with Jesus in heavenly places and we stand with him. And he's talking about standing our ground, standing our sacred ground. And so I think what he's doing is he's speaking some confidence to them. He's like, hey, you don't have to be so afraid of making it through this spiritual life or your life without someone feeding you constantly. You have been established just like I've been established. And so Paul is trying to lift them up, but he's also trying to level the playing field saying we are all in the same place. Paul's saying what makes me special if you think I'm special is the same thing that's inside of you. Over and over again, in both of these letters, he said, be careful what you boast for. And if you're gonna boast in anything, boast in the Lord. Boast that he lives in you, that you know him. Boast in the gospel. And so Paul is leveling the playing field. He makes both of us, you and me, equal in this world. So he's saying that, hey, calm down. You can handle the things that you're facing in your life. Then he makes a statement about Jesus that he has anointed us. We'll get back to this in a moment. I'm going to define it, and then I want to give you two pictures to help you understand anointing. But then he makes another strong statement that could itself be its own message. He's put a deposit inside of us, a, po- a promise, a deposit, a seal of ownership on us that will be, um, it will be experienced in even greater ways in the future. A deposit on something that's yet to come. And so I'll illustrate it this year this way. How many of you are old enough to remember something at old department stores called a layaway? Okay, young people, they don't know what it is, all right? The only reason I know about it is my mom and dad, when I was a kid, owned clothing stores. And my mom and dad had a layaway option for people to purchase clothes. And so this is what you do. if you, Let's say you like a pair of shoes and you're just not ready to pay for all of those shoes at the time, but you're afraid that someone else is gonna buy those shoes that you so badly want. You could put a deposit down on those shoes, And then those shoes would be bagged up and there'd be a tag put on that that bag with your name on it. And then they would be safely put away until the time that you came back and you redeemed the deposit by paying the balance. So we had a whole room just full of layaway stuff. And um, I'll, I'll tell you, very, very rarely would someone forget about the thing that they had put a deposit on. It's like throwing away your money. It happens a few times, but very rarely. Most people would come back Sometimes they'd need reminders, and they'd come back, and they would finish redeeming the purchase. So it's kind of like this. He's saying, I've put a deposit down. The deposit's much better than than 15% on a purchase of something. We've been given true treasure, but it's a picture of something that's yet to come. Even more is to come. The best is yet to come. And so he's saying all of these things. He's like, hey, you guys are having a hard time. You have been made to stand firm, you have been anointed, and God has made a promise to you that he's even put a deposit inside that you can count on. Now that word anointed, I think, helps us understand what it means to stand firm and also what it means to understand what's been placed inside of us. So let's spend the rest of our time on anointing. At the Olympics, when someone wins an Olympic champion, championship, they are literally anointed. They stand on the award stand, They're often, uh, flowers are often put on their head or put around their neck. And then what else is put around their neck after you win a championship? But a medal, right? Something is placed on them. They are anointed as champions. The word here in 2 Corinthians for anointing is the, the Greek word kairo. And it literally means to be resourced, blessed, or furnished by someone else. Or to have something placed upon you or poured on you. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, the same word is used in Greek. God anointed, Cairo, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And this is how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Jesus was anointed. So remember, what's true of Jesus is true of you. We are anointed as he is anointed. In Luke chapter four, verse 18, this is Jesus speaking. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight from the blind and set the oppressed free. So in in our Bible, it's the Greek word that shows up here because the gospel, that's how we get the gospels in Greek. But Luke is quoting Isaiah 61, which was written in Hebrew. And Hebrew has a similar meaning for the word anointing, but the Hebrew word for anointed is the word Messiah, and it's the word we get Messiah from. And so if we, when we say Jesus the Messiah, we are speaking of a title, Jesus the anointed one, the honored one, the resourced one, or as you'll see today, the ready one. Um, Christ is the Greek equivalent of that word Messiah, that title. Sometimes surprises people to know that Christ is not Jesus's last name, it rather is a title, the anointed one, the honored one, the ready one. Massah in the Hebrew scriptures has similar meaning. The first is to smear upon something or to smear upon someone, to paint or to spread. So when they were saying, hey, we're going we're to paint this, we're going to cover this, they would use the word Massah, the word anoint. It also means to cover or pour upon. Another layer of meaning in the Hebrew scriptures for this word means to be honored or to be distinguished above and separate from other things, okay? So it's similar to the word holy, but to be anointed means to be almost declared as holy and set apart and set in a different place. So it's no wonder that in um, ancient times, it's not just in, in the Jewish world or the stories from the Bible, but kings throughout all of history and emperors throughout all of history have been anointed as kings. And there was this symbol that would come upon them, either water or oil would be poured upon them, and it would be a physical symbol of what they believed was true, taking place spiritually that they have been honored, they have been set apart, they have been resourced by the gods, in some cases, like the Romans or in the Jewish scriptures, by the one true God. If you remember, Jesus was anointed, but he was not anointed in a temple. In front of a lot of people, he was not anointed in a palace, but he was anointed by a humble woman of questionable character who had a private dinner poured out. What we're told is a mixture of perfume and oil upon his feet and upon his head. It was her inheritance, we're told, of great riches she anoints Jesus. You can read about it in all four of the Gospels. My favorite versions are Luke and John. We get some more personal meaning. It's one of those handful of stories that's told in all the Gospels when he's anointed. The anointing Paul is talking about here is the anointing, not of oil or water, but of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. So just as Jesus is anointed with the Spirit, you are anointed with the Spirit when you say yes to him. Over the years, um, I mentioned this, uh, oil and water have been used as symbols of anointing. and It really is that. There's nothing special about anointing oil or baptism waters. It's a symbol It's a physical picture of something spiritual, something invisible. And so what do we do when when, when someone makes a move of repentance and they want to associate themselves with Jesus as their savior and rabbi, they get into the baptism waters and they are anointed, covered in baptism waters. Or often we will anoint people with oil who are sick or we will anoint leaders or we will anoint different people or different places that need to be set apart or distinguished So I know some of you have anointed your homes. Some of you have anointed literally the the rooms in your business. You've anointed your children. These special places. And there's nothing special about the oil or the water. It's what it represents. The spirit is covering you. Resourcing you. Setting you apart as honored. It's a physical picture of something, um, something spiritual. And So there's many things like that. We just practice one of them with communion. But here are the two images I want to give you today about anointing because I want to make it really personal. I want you to walk away with something practical rather than just saying God has washed me in the spirit. I want you to walk away with something a little more than that. And the two images come in the Old Testament. And the first one is Isaiah chapter 21 verse 5 where this word masah is used. It's in a strange place. It says this, they set the tables, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink, get up your, you officers, oil the shields. So that word for oil is masah. It should say, and anoint the shields. Now this is referring to an old custom of war in ancient times. Um, John, you can put up that that picture uh, of a shield. So this is a Bronze Age leather shield. So when Isaiah was written, it was the Iron Age, but they were still using these types of shields. A shield made out of leather. There's certain pieces of metal or... or, uh, copper on on the shield, but this is what soldiers would go to war with. Now, imagine this. They're saying, get up and anoint the shield. This is what they meant by it. Not only did you, before battle, did you get up and sharpen your sword and find your armor, but you would anoint your shield. You would lather it in oil. You would rub the oil into the leather. You would make sure that every nook and cranny of that shield was uh, softened and strengthened and anointed. You would literally smear oil all over. Sometimes it wasn't oil, it was uh, animal fat, but nonetheless, it's the same idea. They were anointing their shield, and here's what it means from uh, what anointing means anointing means to be smothered with something to be made ready. Ready your shield. So Jesus was anointed. You are anointed. Jesus was made ready by the Spirit. Each of us is being made ready by the Spirit. That's what anointing means. To get ready, to get up and ready yourself. Um, there, later on, the Romans would come up with different shields, a different design. It would be one of those tall rectangle shields that you've seen in, in, in pictures. Their shields were made out of wood, but those shields were covered in leather. And they had a similar phrase. They'd say, sharpen your sword and ready your shields. They would often take their shields and they would dip it Soak it in water to make it fire retardant so that they could stand fiery arrows, all of the things. But what were they doing? They were anointing their shield in the same way Isaiah is talking about it here, this time in water to be made ready. Okay, this is important. The reason Paul is saying to them, you have been anointed, he is saying, you have been made ready. There are things that you will face that you've never faced before. But God is resourcing you in a way that you are ready. You may not be ready from past experiences or wisdom or have learned from your your old mistakes, but you are ready. To be anointed means to be made ready. We have any baseball or softball players in the room? No, yeah. All right, good. Baseball's what I put on to fall asleep. When I was a kid, I played baseball, and um, we would get new baseball mitts. If you've ever had a new mitt, like the mitt is like stiff. You, You can't bend it. You can't catch a ball with it. So what do you have to do? You have to anoint the mitt. And for several days, you work leather, or you work oil into the leather. Some people soak the baseball mitt in water for days. What are they doing? They're softening it. They're making it ready. To be anointed by the Spirit means to be made ready. So, here's a couple questions of reflection if these things are true. How is the Holy Spirit currently making you ready, and what is he making you ready for? The anointing is for that. Do you or how do you make time to work the Spirit into every nook and cranny to be made soft yet strong? So, those shields, it's interesting, the shields would get softer, but they would provide more protection to the soldier. They're flexible, but able to withstand a sword or a spear. How do you find time to saturate your life, to be immersed in what God is doing, immersed in the Holy Spirit? I think these are good reflective questions. It has to do with spiritual formation, spending time with him, loving union with God. But just as Jesus was made ready, God is making us ready, and it comes through the Spirit. And it's not just a one-time thing. There is a fresh pouring of oil of uh, of anointing that needs to happen for us. You know, those soldiers didn't just anoint the shield one time. They would anoint it before every battle, day after day if that was the case. Sharpen your swords, ready your shields, anoint your shields. Be ready. Um, Part of God making us ready with his spirit means that he gives us a special anointing for certain things that we're called to do. And so um, in the weeks to come, you're going to get to hear some really, really cool music from Aaron. Aaron. So many of you know Aaron's an anointed worship leader, which means there's just a little bit extra behind what he does. And what is the extra, right? It's the spirit. And God is anointing Aaron's calling to be a worship leader. And so God is empowering the calling. That often is the case. If you have any calling in your life, then being made ready has to do also with that calling. So in a few, few days, you're going to get to hear some of Aaron's new music. Uh, it's being released. We've been singing some of the songs for a while, but he's an, an anointed leader or, or a um, worship leader. My fourth cousin um, is, was President Eisenhower. And so over the years, because of just the, the relation our family has to, to him, um, I've read a lot about him. And I love reading about his leadership. And often people would talk about his leadership. He was, he was so thorough and thoughtful and analytical. But when it really came time to make, for, to make decisions, people would say it's almost like he had this instinct of the right thing to do. But when you hear Dwight talk about that thing that people called instinct in making good decisions, he said, no, God was helping me. He was anointed for the task. So get this, there is an anointing that's on every Christian, but there is also special anointing that comes with the things that God has called you to. So if we have any moms and dads in the room, you are called to be a parent, you are an anointed mom, you are an anointed dad. You have all that, we have, I should say, all that we need. Despite those times your wife abandoned you, you know, (laughs) leaves you all by yourself. You have been made ready, you are being made ready. Ready? how are we being made ready? Get up, ready yourselves. Anointing. Now here's the second image I want to give you. And it's kind of a strange passage, but I think what it gets at is it's going to show us what we're being anointed for. So we get anointed for those specific things that God has called us to. But there's just a certain kind of life that God is trying to animate and grow in us. I think when he made us, you know, the image of God has been placed inside of us. All of the seeds of godly virtue and godliness rest inside of every person, whether they know him or not. But what's needed is when we give ourselves to Jesus, we are t- said that we're born again. And the spirit comes in and brings new life. And guess what happens? Those seeds that have been covered up or that image of God that has been tarnished, those seeds begin to grow. God brings life to them again. Or that, or that tarnished image begins to get cleaned up. This is what God does. Now here's a really interesting way to think about what it is that God is trying to grow, make ready in a person through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So Exodus chapter 30 is a chapter that's about um, preparing the temple. And so it's during that time where Israel has been freed. They've been, uh, God has done amazing things. He's, he's, he's rescued them. It's this mirac- miraculous rescue. The exodus has taken place. They're now wandering in the desert. They're trying to figure out what kind of people they're going to be. God takes them to the mountain. He gives them the law. But then he also says, this is, we're, we're, what we're going to have is we're going to have a temple that lives in the center uh, of this people. And God is going to rest in that temple. And so God is very specific about all the details of the temple including this thing called anointing oil. So it's that similar word, for anointing, masah. And he tells him exactly how to make the oil. It's a recipe with certain ingredients and certain amounts. And then he says this particular oil is only be, meant to be used for anointing the most sacred things. Okay, So I'm going to tell you about the ingredients and then I want to tell you about what each of those ingredients represents. So Exodus chapter 30, verse 22, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices. 500 shekels of liquid myrrh. Half as much, that is, 250 shekels. They weren't very good at math, so God is helping them. God invented math here. <laughs> How do these things get in the Bible sometimes? <laughs> Half as much of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hen, which is a measurement or amount of olive oil. Make these into the sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. And then if you keep reading in verse 26, we see that they're meant to anoint the entire tent of meeting. The Ark of the Covenant, the table and all the articles that are on it in the holy place, the lampstand, the accessories, everything, the utensils even. The basin is anointed in olive oil. It has, it's, it's a symbol. It's been set apart. It's been honored in a certain way. And then it says in verse 30, and anoint Aaron and his sons. He's the priest. So this special oil is used to anoint. So it's a symbol again of God's favor, his blessing, his resourcing. God is making them ready. Now here's what each of those ingredients means. It's so neat how God does this. So many things just have like, um, there, there, there's metaphors over and over again just to add meaning to our life. He's not just making something that smells good, it has a meaning behind it. So myrrh, that first ingredient rep- mentioned. So it's a long process to extract the oil um, from this plant, but what it does and leaves you is an enjoyable fragrance that over the years has become a symbol of death, or you could say death with dignity. And so myrrh would often be used during burial to prepare people's bodies uh, for burial. So, you know, to keep the smell from being terrible, they would literally anoint the entire body and its garments in this fragrant, um, this fragrant oil. It was very expensive. So it had to be used in, in just the right way. And so over the years, it's been a symbol of death. It's the ingredient, by the way, that the women in the Easter stories are taking to the tomb that first morning. Because remember the story, they have to get Jesus' body off the cross in a hurry because the Sabbath is starting. They didn't have time to prepare his body adequately. He hadn't yet been anointed with myrrh. And so the women that first morning, Easter morning, they're going to the tomb. And what are they carrying? They're carrying fine myrrh to anoint his body. Myrrh was also one of the gifts that was brought to Jesus by those distinguished kings at his birth. So it's a picture of fragility and death. But because myrrh was the aroma of the first Easter, certain Christian traditions like the Orthodox tradition and the Catholic tradition associate myrrh not just with death but with new life. It literally was the smell of the resurrection. When they heard that he was not there, that he had been risen, myrrh was the the fragrance. So over the years, myrrh has also become a symbol of new life. So death and new life, it's beautiful. So anytime you smell myrrh, remember his death, remember his resurrection. Cinnamon, that second item comes from a a cinnamon plant that is a plant that grows very upright. So you, you you can Google, and what you'll see is you'll see a brown stalk of the cinnamon. It's upright. It's very strong. It stands true. Over the years, cinnamon has been used as a symbol of uprightness or faithfulness, or you could use the word true, to be true to something, to stay true to something, to not get off track, to point in a certain direction. And so the anointing oil is made up of things that represent death and new life, but also this idea of uprightness and faithfulness. By the way, those are the things, some of the things that the anointing makes you ready for. God wants to increase your uprightness, your faithfulness to him. Your strength to stand when everything around you is, is tossing and turning, you're being blown in different directions, you can straight stay true to God. Calamus, the third ingredient, is a reed that grew in the swamps. And what would happen is calamus would grow, and when it would reach its place of maturity, when they knew that the oil is ready to be extracted, the, calamus, the head of the calamus plant would get so heavy that it would fall over, it would bend over. They actually use the word bow. When it's bowing, it's ready. So when the calamus reed would bow, they would cut it, and then they'd go through the long process of extracting the oil. But over the, years, over the years, calamus has become a symbol of humility and service because of what is seen in the natural world, the way that it would fall over. And so what are you being made ready for when you're anointed? The anointing oil literally represents humility and service and sacrifice. When you're filled with the Spirit, you can't help but serve. It's hard to go through a week thinking, how do I not serve someone today? Because the Spirit is animating that, empowering that, reminding you of that over and over again. You have been anointed for humility and service. Cassia There's hundreds of types that grow in tropical settings. We're not exactly sure which type is used here. But um, cassia is the the plant that's used in, any of you have heard of castor oil? Any grandmas? (laughs) Any of your grandmas make you take some of that? Oh, my. Let's just say it brings inner cleansing. And it is smooth and fast. <laughs> so over the years, it's been used literally for that inner cleansing, healing. And so calamus over the years has been a picture, a symbol of things like repentance. Isn't that what brings inner cleansing for us? A heart turned back to God. Forgiveness. Cleansing. All of those things. It's beautiful. That's what you're being anointed for. More repentance. Repentance to be made new, to be cleansed. And then last, the, the ingredient that makes up the majority of this, this recipe is olive oil. And, you know, the whole thing represents the, the Holy Spirit, but olive oil especially has always been an image of the Holy Spirit. But it represents many things. It's used in cooking. So it's over the years been a symbol of nourishment and growth. It's been used in, in um, uh, the healing of, of wounds. So remember the, the story of the Samaritan Good Samaritan, he pours wine and olive oil in the wounds of, of that person that's on the road. So along with nourishment and growth, it's a symbol of healing and comfort. It's often put on people after a long journey to bring refreshing. And so think about it. So the very recipe for the anointing oil is made up of these plants that over the years have represented things like this, death and new life uprightness and faithfulness, humility and service, repentance and inner cleansing, forgiveness, nourishment, growth, healing and comfort. If you ever want to know what God is up to, God is up to bringing more anointing in your life for more of these things. I think that's what it means to be an anointed person is that you live out of these things. They sound very familiar to the, what? The fruits of the spirit. It's the same stuff just shared with us in a different way. And so simple message today, which is, you have been anointed. If you are with Jesus, you have been anointed. You have been made ready. God is making you ready. And God is making you ready to have all of these beautiful things be more and more a part of your life. And you know what happens when those things are more and more a part of your life? They bless other people. And guess what people do when they see good things? They're drawn to it. The beauty of God is attractive. And people see it. And so worship team, you guys can come out and I want to give us just a moment to pray together. Um, I think the best way to end a message like this today when we're talking about the Holy Spirit and God's anointing in our life is to ask for more of it. And so I will say this, for 2,000 years now, there's been an argument in the Christian faith about what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not smart enough to clear it up or explain it for us today. I don't even totally understand it. Some people say the spirit all comes all at once. Some people say you need a second outpouring of the spirit. But what all of those people debate about, what the one thing is that they agree on is that we need to rely on the spirit every day or we need a fresh filling of the spirit every day. And so even though we might debate about how it gets poured out, what everyone agrees on is that we need it every day. And it's the way David described it. David said, I need a fresh outpouring of oil and not just oil, I need fresh oil for today. In Psalm 23, David says this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Here's what I think it's okay to believe when it, regarding the spirit and his anointing. It's okay to always want more. It's okay every day to wake up and say, God, fill me. It's okay to wake up and spend time working the spirit into every nook and cranny of your life. I think it's okay to wake up in the morning and say, God, flood me. Baptize me in your spirit today so that I might be ready to stand firm, to live out the inheritance that you've given me to be this type of person. So what I'd like to do is let's stand together and I want to pray a blessing of fresh oil on all of you. So let's bow our heads. You guys can bring down the lights. Let's go to the quiet place of prayer. You might want to open your hands, which is a sign of receiving when someone's giving you a blessing. And what we're asking for is a fresh outpouring of God's spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you that right now you look down on us from heaven We thank you that we are seated with Jesus, that we stand with him, and we thank you that you have sent the spirit. And you continue to send the spirit. We thank you that our anointing is not just a one-time thing, but we thank you for that. We thank you for that moment that we trusted in Jesus, that everything changed for us and the deposit was placed inside and we were given what we need. We also thank you, God, that anointing means to be made ready. And so we are saying today, Father, we need more of you. We need soaked more in the power of the spirit and the presence of the spirit, the truth of the spirit. We need your comfort and wisdom worked into our lives. And so I pray for Cornerstone Church today and every person here, I pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Fresh oil for today. And I also bless them, Father, with fresh oil for tomorrow and the day after. May we stand up, may we get up and make ourselves ready as we turn to you and ask for more. So, Father, more and more of your Spirit. Breathe new life in us. Thank you that that is the key to new creation. It's the key to the resurrection life. I pray that we would see glimpses of the living today and tomorrow and this week because of this fresh outpouring in our life. And so, Father, do what you do with your Spirit. Bring healing and comfort and wisdom. Help us be upright. Make us humble. Make us servants. Just do all the things that you do when you resource your people. So Father, I bless my friends with that fresh outpouring. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.